Well, I want to welcome you this morning. My name is Adam Young. I'm the lead pastor here at Element Church. Um, as we get started, or as I get started, I guess we've been started for a while. It's just my turn now. Um, just want to thank Nick and Amanda um, for leading us today. Uh, as most of you know, if you're new or you just haven't been here in a while, then you may not know um, that uh, our former worship pastor, Jay, resigned. Last week was his last week. And so, you know, part of the message last week was just a challenge uh, for all of us to really look at the giftings that God has given us, the calling that God has placed in our life. Um, you know, we kind of set that, you know, in light of New Year's resolutions, which some of us do, some of us pretend not to do. And um, just really talking about, like, what is God calling you to in 2019 and how has God gifted you? Um, and um, Nick and Amanda stepped up and just said, you know, like, this is something that we feel passionate about worship and using our gifts and our musical talents and knowledge. And so um, as we continue to pray as a church and seek God's will for what the next steps are um, as far as leading worship for us on a week-to-week basis goes, um, you know, I just appreciate them willing, being willing to step up and say, we'll lead. And so I'm just grateful for your heart and willingness to, uh, to step up and, and do that um, and, and appreciate you doing that. And on a week's notice, too, which uh, if you can imagine, if I had come to any of you and been like, hey, will you lead worship next week? Like what thoughts would go through your mind at that moment? Um, they just did a great job, and I appreciate, um, appreciate everything. Uh, so let me catch you up to where we're at. So all through the month of December, we were in a series called What If, just exploring the reality of what if Jesus had never been born, which is what we're supposed to be celebrating at Christmas. Like what would things look like? How would things be different if Jesus... Jesus had never been born. And what we did is through the majority of the month, we just looked at it from a theological perspective. Like, how has our understanding of God, how do we relate to God, um, how has it impacted our, our personal um, spiritual journeys and our worship and how we, you know, uh, approach God and think about him. So we just looked at it from a theological perspective. And I promised you that at the as, as we would wrap up this series, that we would talk from a historical perspective and a sociological perspective of how our world has changed because Jesus came. And today is that day. So some of you are looking forward to this. This is going to be exciting and interesting, and I'm going to quote people's names that you already know who they are, and it's intriguing. And some of you are like, I left history class a long time ago on purpose. I didn't show up here today uh, to feel like I was sitting in a classroom. And uh, so I'm going to do the best I can to not make this dull and boring. Um, I'm going to, I'll try to keep it interesting and, and uh, not let this seem too much like a classroom. Um, however, today, um, you'll notice a couple of things. Normally, uh, on a Sunday morning, I'm going to say, hey, I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles too. Everyone's going to open up their Bibles. Actually, most no one in here will open up your Bible. You'll open up the Bible app on your phone because that's so much easier to find your way. Um, and normally, if you go to the live events tab, you click Element Church because, you know, your phone, you know, the government knows where you are every waking moment. So they already knew you were, you know, your phone knows where you are. So it would put Element Church right at the top. You'd click it. And all the scriptures I would read 
would already be in the Bible app listed for you. Now, you can still go to the Bible app. There's still some things like the connection card, um, the things that are in your seats. You can fill those out digitally through the Bible app. There's a few announcements that we'll cover at the end of service today. Uh, Information about those announcements are, are, are in the Bible app that you can use. And you are certainly welcome to have that open so you can hit a couple of scriptures that I'm going to mention. But I didn't list out the scriptures that I'm covering today because rather than doing it by scripture, we're going to do it by category of certain categories of how our world looks different because of Jesus, what he taught, and the movement that he started. Um, And so we're just going to systematically look at a handful of categories uh, of how our world is different. I'll I'll reference some of Jesus' teachings. And then how his later followers uh, utilized those teachings and helped to transform our world. Um, And so we'll just start moving right along. Um, You know, most people, um, the influence that they have in this world begins to quickly diminish the moment they die. I mean, if they were very influential, if they were very important, we might name a city after them. Eventually, you might get your face on a coin or, you know, a paper, uh, you know, dollar or or whatever currency. There are a few things people might name their children after you or something. They'll, you know, nowadays they're going to make a movie about you or whatever. Um, Netflix will start a new series on your life. Um, So, but for the most part, the influence that you exert quickly diminishes the moment that you die. Jesus, like he did many human uh, traditions and ways of uh, doing life, reversed that. Because when he was alive, his life was actually pretty obscure, right? Not only did he not have a city named after him right after his death, he didn't even have a place to live while he was alive. Uh, While many people have had great lives of fame, and have been known um, in, you know, throughout great regions nowadays with technology, you can easily be known around the world uh, if you do something goofy enough on YouTube. But um, it was not easy to become well-known, but there were a lot of famous people in the first century and in other centuries in antiquity. Jesus wasn't one of them. If you didn't live in Palestine uh, in a very specific region, you probably never heard him, you probably never saw him, and you probably never heard his name until you came into contact um, with one of his followers later on. Now, if you lived in Palestine, he became a fairly famous figure. We know that as he traveled from town to town to town, that thousands of people would show up. You can imagine why, right? Like if somebody was in Cross Creek, Uh, and traditions up there north of us, and we're coming down to Murphy Creek, and we had heard that they had just raised someone from the dead, like, we would be intrigued. Rightly skeptical, but we would be intrigued. We'd want to know what was happening, want to see it for ourselves. Um, We we would go to investigate. Like, imagine in the first century when you don't have a million other distractions in life, um, how much more likely you were to stop what you were doing to go see who this man was. So if you lived in Palestine, you, you, you might have had the opportunity to see him or to hear him or even be healed by him. You, you might have heard his name, but outside of Palestine in the greater Roman Empire, it was a rather obscure life. But it was after his life on earth that things began to change. Jesus' name and legacy have been sorely misused and abused over the centuries. Kings and leaders have tried to co-op his authority by using his name, and Jesus the Liberator keeps breaking through. 
When people claim his name for something like slavery, a William Wilberforce or Jonathan Blanchard sees in him the call to freedom. When people claim his authority for discrimination and segregation and racism, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. sees in him and his message a call for love and acceptance and unity. Um, when people have tried to stamp out his name from history, uh, you know, in the former Soviet Union, they had something called the League of Militant Godless. Um, and it was uh, led by a name, Yamilian Yarskovsky. I think I'm saying that correctly. Am I saying that? We got a Russian okay, expert back there. I got, I got the nod. So um, anyways, he was the leader of the League of the Militant Godless and whose purpose in the Soviet Union was to stamp out all, all religious faith. And here's a quote from him uh, that he said uh, about what you know, his role was and when it came to Christianity. He said, Christianity is like a nail. The harder you strike it, the deeper it goes. And just like there were crowds and mobs who either try to make Jesus king or try to kill Jesus, and he kept escaping, um, so does his legacy from those who would try to misuse it. H.G. Uh, Wells, a historian, says this, a historian like myself who doesn't even call himself a Christian finds the picture consider- centering irresistibly around the life and character of this most significant man. The historian's test of an individual's greatness is what did he leave to grow? Did he start men to thinking along fresh lines with the vigor that persisted after him? By this test, Jesus stands first. Um, And I'm going to read from my notes quite a bit today. Um, I'm approaching this more of like when I'm teaching my courses in college uh, than when I'm preaching. Normally, my preaching notes have a few scriptures Uh, and a couple bullet points. I type out all my scriptures because I cheat. I don't turn my Bible like you guys do. It's just easier for me to have them all typed out. Um, But I've got more notes than normal today, and so I may be reading a little bit more. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to start hitting a couple topics that I think are important for us to recognize. Um, And the first that I want to hit um, is how our world has changed in regards to how they view and see and treat children. Uh, In the ancient world, children were disposable. Um, if you were born the wrong gender or with any abnormality or any weakness, if your family was poor and didn't feel like they could properly care for you, or if your family was rich and they didn't want to risk the inheritance or the estate being split, um, they had every legal right to kill any baby at any age. Uh, Historian O.M. Blake wrote a study called When Children Became People, studying how the evolution of our understanding as a culture has changed in regards to children. He says that, uh, he notes that uh, children weren't generally named until the eighth day um, because it made it less personally painful um, to dispose of the child uh, when they didn't have a name. And it was easier to get rid of them. And he said in his study, it was because of the influence of Christian teaching that this practice was abandoned. Um, There were two ways that you would get rid of a child. Either A, you would drown it, or B, you would just leave it out for exposure. Um, And oftentimes, they were just taken to the trash dump for the town or city and just left there. Occasionally, babies were rescued, but never out of love. They were rescued so that they could be sold in the future as slaves. 
Um, They had no legal right to their own life. The head of the family had total control and every legal right to kill or dispose of a child at any age, not just when they were a few days old. Um, And then I want to reflect on some of Jesus's teaching in Matthew chapter 18. It says this, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the middle of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Matthew 19. When the children were brought to him, that's Jesus, that he might lay his hands on them and pray for them, the disciples rebuked the people. I mean, even his own followers weren't quite there with Jesus yet. People were trying to bring their kids to Jesus, and the disciples are trying to stop them. And Jesus said, verse 14 of Matthew 19, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid laid his hands on them and went away. Uh, What we see from early Christian documents, particularly in the second century, is that um, the widespread widespread practices of abortion and exposure and infanticide um, were prohibited and fought against. The shepherd of Hermas said this, all babies are glorious before God. Early Christians began collecting money to care for the orphans and needy. Christians developed a practice that we even use today of naming godparents, so that in an age where life expectancy was rather low, if the parents were to die, that there were other parents there to care for the children in their absence. Um, what used to be a practice of leaving children exposed at a trash heap started to transform in the Roman Empire that people began leaving babies instead um, at places of Christian worship um, because they knew that the babies would be cared for. They could relieve themselves of the obligation, but they knew that the Christians would take care of them, which eventually led by the fourth century as Christianity grew in influence that in the entire Roman Empire, um, the practice of exposure was outlawed. The ancient world viewed children, the poor, the diseased, And the disabled as burdens to be discarded, but Jesus taught and his followers believed that they were bearers of divine glory who are equally deserving of love, care, respect, and life. Our world looks a lot different today in how we understand and view and value children, um, largely through the influence of Jesus and his followers who understood that they had as much value as anyone and deserved love and care irregardless of their situation in which they were born. The second topic that I want to mention um, is how our world is different in regards to how we view and treat women. I want to read a letter. This is a letter we have from the first century of a husband soldier um, who is writing a letter to his pregnant wife. And here's what it says. I ask and beg of you to take good care of our baby son. If you are delivered of a child before I come home, if it is a boy, keep it. If it is a girl, discard it. You have sent me word, don't forget you. How can I forget you? Do not worry. Um, Such a short, strange letter from our perspective. You know, in ancient Athens, girls received little to no education. Um, They were legally classified as a child, irregardless of age. And that's because of how um, 
they were viewed. They were viewed as property. They were either the property of their father or the property of their husband. Um, There were punishments um, for both the seduction and the rape of women. But interestingly, the, the punishment of seducing a woman was far more severe than the punishment of raping a woman. And that's because if you seduced a woman, it ran the risk of her um, giving you access so that you could steal her father or her husband's money. So they punished seducing of a woman more severely than raping. In our culture, right, if someone damages your car, then the uh, compensation is paid to you. You are the owner of that vehicle. In the ancient world, if a woman was violated, um, compensation was paid to her father or her husband. And in many cultures, uh, husbands were legally required uh, to divorce their wife if their wife uh, was raped um, because she was property to him and only held certain value. But I want, I want you to look at some of the things that Jesus says in regards to women. There's two of them that I want to read. I'll do a little explanation on the first one. Luke chapter 11, verse 27. So Jesus is out and about doing ministry. He's healing people. He's teaching people. He's blessing people. And, and then this is what happens um, in the middle of him working amongst the crowd. Verse 27 of Luke chapter 11. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he, this is Jesus, said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. In the ancient world, a woman's highest calling was to bear children, particularly male children. In ancient Sparta, um, a woman who bared a son received double rations compared to a woman who gave birth to a daughter. That's what a woman's role was viewed as and understood. And, and here what you have is Jesus not being disrespectful to his own mom. Somebody calls out and says, blessed is the woman who gave you birth. What they were doing is they were declaring a stereotype and an understanding in their culture that a woman's value was to produce a male child and the more influence and greater he was than the better That was her goal. That was her purpose in life. And Jesus is going to redefine it. He says, no. That's not what we call blessed. That's not what we're after. That's not the chief end of a woman. The chief end of all of us is to know and love and to serve and to follow God. That's what real value is. Here's another one. Luke chapter 10. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister named Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So you have these two ladies doing two very different things. Martha was doing what the culture valued. She was serving. That was her place. She was cooking and cleaning. Mary was doing what the culture valued for men. And that was sitting at the feet of a great teacher, which was a sign of respect, and it was a sign that you were working to become his disciple. 
That's whether, and it does, not just with Jesus, but with any great teacher, with any sage, with any rabbi, you would sit at their feet as a sign of respect, and you would sit at their feet and listen so that you could learn and that you could become their disciple and a teacher. Martha was doing what the culture valued in women. Mary was doing what the culture valued in men. And Martha's like, Jesus, will you tell her to get off her lazy rear end and help me clean and cook? And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Mary's figured out what the right thing is, and I'm not going to stop her. Jesus valued Mary's insight. Jesus wanted Mary to be there, to become a disciple. He's trying to get Martha to realize you're too worried and anxious about things that don't really matter. Your place is not here running around doing chores. Your place is here learning, growing, becoming a disciple. The early Christians were proud of the new role women had been given in the church. In all four Gospels, all four, it's women who are the first ones to witness Jesus and his resurrection. Now, here's what's interesting about that, is in the ancient world in the first century, a woman's testimony had no legal weight in court. So a woman could not testify in court, and it be counted as legitimate testimony. Yet the original testimony, the original eyewitnesses who gave the original reports of Jesus and his resurrection in all four Gospels are women. Here's what one ancient uh, philosopher, Greek philosopher uh, named Celsus, um, who did not like Christianity, argued that there are no good grounds for believing that Jesus was resurrected, and it was because the testimony came from women. He wouldn't believe in Christianity. He wouldn't believe Jesus had been raised from the dead because the testimony came from a woman. That was his problem. That's why he couldn't believe. Yet in all four Gospels, the Christians are proud to claim that the original eyewitnesses and testimony come from women. Roughly half of all the households Paul mentions uh, that host a church in the New Testament are headed by women. In many of the congregations, the majority of members were women. And women played prominent roles in evangelism, hosting church congregations, helping to start new congregations, and funding both Jesus' ministry and Paul's ministry. Jesus traveled not only with 12 disciples, but with a group of women, which was scandalous in the first century. And not only did he travel with them, we are explicitly told in the Gospels that it was the women who helped to fund his ministry. And the longest single conversation between Jesus and one other person recorded in all of the Gospels is in John chapter 4 between Jesus and a woman. Now, in our day, um, our culture loves to dig up old dirt, right, on people. Um, whether it's your Twitter feed or it's something that someone says. And listen, there's a lot of outrage and disgust. And for some of these issues, the outrage and disgust is 100% reasonable and justified. Um, and for some of it, it, it isn't. But our culture loves to dig up anything they can to discredit anyone they want. Now, there may be parts of um, the New Testament that you wish would go a little farther in one particular area or another, whether it deals with women or any other issue. But here's one thing 
that we never have to do. Unlike many people today, we never have to go back and apologize for Jesus. You know, there's a lot of historical figures who did incredible things, but they were off on something. They said something, they did something that we're uncomfortable with today, and we have to apologize on their behalf. Right? We have to do it with the founding fathers. We have to do it with the great uh, leaders and, and uh, those who started the, the, the Protestant Reformation. It, go back to any point in history, and there's something that we have to apologize about for people that we respect who did great things. But we never have to go back and apologize for anything Jesus taught when it comes to women or anything for that matter. We never have to make excuses that his words or actions are a product of another generation or another world. In fact, our world today is still trying to catch up to the things that Jesus did and taught in regards to women. Uh, Here's our third topic, education. Um, You know, Jesus spent, a lot of people don't think about this, he spent the majority of his life as a blue-collar worker. He built tables and chairs. He worked with his hands. He was a carpenter which means like the flowing-haired, you know, conditioner, uh, Jesus that you see um, that looks soft and gentle is fine if that's what you like to hang in your house. I'm not trying to trash your picture, but it's nothing what Jesus looked like. He would have had a beard, and he would have had muscles, and he would have had rough hands. He was a carpenter for the majority of his life. Now, we know that Jesus knew from the beginning that he had come to do more than just build tables and make sawdust, that he had come for a greater purpose, that he had a mission to fulfill. But what it was exactly and what caused him to go, okay, it's time to put down the chisel and it's time to change careers, we don't know what sparked it. I mean, other than God's timing and God's initiation, we don't, we don't know what made him choose it. But we do know how his ministry began. We do know how he changed careers. And one day Jesus walks into a synagogue uh, in his hometown. He gets up and he reads from the uh, prophet Isaiah. And then he sits down, which is the position of a teacher with authority. That's they would not stand and speak like I do today. Jesus sat down. That was how a, a prominent teacher would teach. He sat down and he began teaching the crowd. And his teaching was so phenomenal that it took everyone's attention. Everyone was amazed. But then he kept teaching and kept teaching. And they started to realize this guy's different. He's radical. He doesn't think like us. And they ran him out of town. And that's how Jesus' public ministry began. Uh, What we see in the portrait of Jesus in the gospel with the crowds, the religious elite, the experts of the law, all were amazed at his teaching. And they kept calling him rabbi. Now, this is an interesting point. If you go back and read the Old Testament, which is the part of your Bible that was written before Jesus, you don't see the word rabbi. It doesn't appear. And and here's why. Okay, In the Old Testament, Israel, uh, as a people, they had their own land and they had their own armies. Right? So... They had their own form of identity, but eventually all those things were taken from them. And they became a people of the book. That's what they had. They didn't have land. They didn't have a throne. They didn't have a king. They didn't have armies, but they had a book, and it became a part of their identity. Rome had armies. Greece had culture. Egypt had wealth. The Phoenicians had ships, but the Israelites, they had a book. 
And what happened is people began to value teaching. And this new prominent role of rabbi grew in the culture. And what rabbis would do is they would not only give insight, but they would cite former rabbis. They'd say, Rabbi Himel says this. Rabbi Shammai says this. Now, this wasn't plagiarism. This was a sign of knowledge and education and expertise, just like we expect a judge today to cite former cases as precedents in the same way they would cite former rabbis. But Jesus was different. He showed up saying things like this, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Jesus never cited another rabbi. He never cited another expert on the law. His authority came from himself. His authority to know truth, to know personal secrets, his authority to know God's plan, God's will, and the future. He was a different kind of teacher. The historical impact of Jesus' teaching is hard to state. The Gospels, uh, which are the written recordings of his teaching, uh, have been translated in more than 3,000 languages. The second most translated book in history has been translated into about 300 languages. In the secular world, in the academic world, scholars keep score by how often their works are cited by other scholars. By this sheer secular score, Jesus, his intellectual impact is unprecedented. According to Harvard Press, uh, Professor Harvey Cox, the words of the Sermon on the Mount are the most luminous, most quoted, most analyzed, most contested, most influential moral and religious discourse in all of human history. This may sound like an overstatement, but it is not Jesus said these as his final words in Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's a lot of authority. Nobody else taught like that. Socrates didn't say things like that. Confucius, the Buddha, they never said things like that. And Jesus' followers took it seriously. In Acts chapter 2, we read that they met daily in the temple courts and in homes, devoting themselves to teaching. In the second century, a follower of Jesus named Justin Martyr began forming schools to integrate what Jesus had taught with the classical learning. In the Greco-Roman world, classical or formal education was reserved for male children of wealthy families. Yet the leaders of the church remembered that they followed a man who taught everyone, who commanded them to teach all peoples. So they did and opened up education opportunities for men and women, slave and free. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. And one of the scribes, these are one of the experts on the law, in the first century, came up and heard them, that's Jesus and others, disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. While there were a few great libraries in the ancient world, notably the one in Alexandria, um, by the 6th century A.D., virtually all libraries were non-existent. There were no extant 
uh, libraries in Europe by the 6th century A.D. It was Christian monasteries that preserved the classic works of antiquity. American scholar Thomas Canhill, uh, who taught at Queen's College, um, Seton Hall, a few others, um, wrote in How the Irish Saved Civilization that it was Christian monastic communities who preserved the far majority of ancient texts we have today. Most works from antiquity exist today only because these monastic communities who preserved both classical and pagan authors. And from these monasteries came universities. The first university was established in the 12th century in Paris, uh, Cambridge, um, Oxford were established in the 13th century um, and were designed to tr- teach people to love the Lord with all their mind. The motto of Oxford comes from Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light. The very first law to require universal mass education came out of Massachusetts in 1647. and was called the Old Deluder Satan Act. And the whole point of the law was that they understood that one of Satan's greatest ways to to distract us, to, to fight against us, is to make us ignorant of the scriptures. And so the very first law requiring universal public education um, was an attempt to make sure that people knew how to read and were well informed with scriptures, uh, with the scriptures. Within six years of landing in Massachusetts, the Puritans established what would become a very reputable college. I want to read you a part of the handbook from that uh, Puritan college. It says this, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and study is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. If you don't know, this was Harvard University. And then educators started Yale, William and Mary, Princeton, Brown, Dartmouth, all as schools to train up people in their love and devotion to the Lord. And in the scriptures, Dartmouth was started as a missionary training school to help train missionaries to go out and to share the gospel with Native Americans. Um, Many people have heard of Sunday school, but don't really know where it comes from. In 1870, a follower of Jesus in Great Britain named uh, Robert Rakes, um, he couldn't stand the cycle of poverty and ignorance that was going around and really destroying a whole generation of little children. So he took children who had to work six days a week in squalor. Sunday was their only day off. And uh, said, I'm going to start a school to teach children to read um, and to write and to learn about God. And so he did. And he started it and called it Sunday School. And within 50 years, there were 1.5 million children being taught by 160,000 volunteer teachers who had a vision for the education of a generation. Sunday school was not a privatized, optional program for church kids. It was one of the great educational volunteer triumphs of the world. And in efforts to take the gospel to new nations, it was Christian missionaries who helped develop alphabets and written forms of languages all over the world. In many cases, the first efforts of scientific study of language was done by Christian missionaries. They compiled the first dictionaries, They wrote the first grammars. They developed the first alphabets. The first important proper names written in most languages in our world was the name Jesus. And it was the desire to help people to be able to read the book for themselves, to give them tools to grow and to learn. People from all classes and all genders um, by taking Jesus' words seriously to love the Lord 
with all your mind. Now, um, I'll make this point quick on science. Most people assume that science and faith are enemies, um, and it's just not true. As a matter of fact, if you read uh, on the philosophy of science and the history of science, what you'll find is that most historians um, understand that the worldview and frameworks that come from Christianity are what laid the foundation for the scientific um, revolution and movement. Princeton professor, um, uh, I'm going to mispronounce, Professor Allen, I'm going to mispronounce his first name, um, wrote this, We have begun to realize from the very birth science owed a great deal to Christianity. And he argues that um, the attitudes in Christianity were indispensable for the rise of science to come. Christians, unlike Plato, believe that matter is good, and since God created it, it should be studied. Alfred North Whitehead, one of the dominant thinkers of the 20th century, uh, stated that it is the Christian belief in the rationality of God that made it possible for science to emerge, because if you believe creation was made by a rational God, it will lead to fundamentally different questions and assumptions that will lead you to look for those guiding principles and laws. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your mind, and people did. The vast majority of pioneers of science, William of Ockham, Francis Bacon, Galileo, Copernicus, Blaise Pascal, Joseph Priestley, Louis Pasteur, Isaac Newton, who wrote commentaries on the book of Revelation, if you didn't know, um, viewed their work as learning to think God's thoughts. Uh, one more. Healthcare. This is what Jesus says concerning the future and what's going to happen when he judges the world. Matthew 25 Verse, starting in verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison or visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, of my brothers, you did it to me. Uh, in the ancient world, sickness and disease was a terrible problem. And, of course, without a full understanding and knowledge of germs and um, the causes, um, people often responded in fear. Greek historian um, Thucydides wrote about how people in Athens responded during a plague, and this is what he said: They died with one, with on one, with no one, excuse me, to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants per, uh, perished through lack of any intention or care. The bodies of the dying were heaped up one on top of the other. No fear of God or law of man had any restraining influence. Uh, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius in 165 A.D., um, what was probably smallpox. Um, killed roughly a third of the entire population, including Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor himself. Less than a century later, the plague would return once again um, and begin to claim um, what has been written as many as 5,000 lives a day just in the city of Rome. And um, Dionysus, uh, third century bishop of Alexandria, wrote about how the Christians reacted to the plague. He said this, Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick. 
attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ and with them departed this life severely and serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Um, in the fourth century, uh, a very staunch opponent to Christianity, uh, Emperor Julian the Apostate, um, chastised his own pagan priests for not keeping up with the Christians. And here's what he wrote. I think that when the poor happened to be neglected and overlooked by the priests, that's his own pagan priests, the impious Galileans, so those are the Christians living in Galilee, observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. The impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lacked aid from us. Gregory of Nyssa, an early church father, preached a sermon um, early in the church's history, and he said this, Lepers have been made in the image of God. In the same way you and I have, and perhaps they preserve that image better than we. Let us take care of Christ while there is still time. Let us minister to Christ's needs. Let us give Christ nourishment. Let us clothe Christ. Let us gather Christ in. Let us show Christ honor. And the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, through the influence of Gregory and others, um, created a new law or a new decree that anywhere a church was built, they were required to build a hospital next to it to care for the sick and poor. Now, there were certainly hospitals uh, in the ancient world, but they were not open to the public. They were open to a very select group of people, mostly the wealthy, or they were not hospitals. They were just gathering places. It was a hostel where sick people gathered to be away from the rest. And if you were poor, if you were a slave, if you were a gladiator, you were put into a hostel with no real care. They just wanted you away from everyone else. And it was through this influence of the early church that public hospitals began. Another follower of Jesus, John Durant, couldn't stand the sound of soldiers crying out on a battlefield after they had been wounded. So this Swiss, excuse me, Swiss flo, flo, wow, philanthropist, I got to talk slower, um, said he would devote his life to helping them in Jesus' name and start an organization called the Red Cross. A Lutheran pastor in Germany trained a group of mostly peasant women to nurse the sick. This led to a movement of hospitals all over Europe and inspired one young woman, Florence Nightingale, to give her life to care for the sick. And she asked that when she died, she wanted her grave to be marked simply with the cross and her initials. And she wanted to serve with no acclaim. Another follower of Jesus who had come to be known as Father Damien created a place in Hawaii for lepers to be loved and cared for. He used to come by every week and say, God loves you lepers. And then one week he showed up and he said, God loves us lepers. And it was his care for those people that he contracted the disease and from which he would die from it. Philosopher Mark Nelson writes this, If you ask, what is Jesus' influence on medicine and compassion, I would suggest that wherever you have an institution of self-giving for the lonely and for practical welfare for the lonely, schools, hospitals, hospices, orphanages for those who will never be able to repay, this probably has its roots in the movement of Jesus. 
And the famed historian and sociologist Rodney Stark argues that it is the Christian's care and response to sick people that is the single greatest reason for the spread of Christianity around the world. Now, to close this out, here's what I recognize, right? This is not a normal sermon. Um, There's not a lot of like, okay, this is what you're supposed to do tomorrow morning when you wake up with this new information. Um, But as we wrap up this series on really just talking about what if, what if Jesus had never been born? Because there's a lot of people in our world that actually think our world would be a lot better if he had never been born. They think our world would be a lot better if there weren't religion. And no doubt there have been plenty of people who have misused and abused Jesus' name. They've tried to co-op his authority and use the name of Jesus or religion for their own gains. And there's a lot of moments of embarrassment where Christians have not done the right thing or the best thing. But our world is drastically different because of Jesus and his cultural revolutionary teachings, his stance on how to understand and view and treat women and children and the sick and the poor, his value of education and his willingness to teach everyone has reshaped what our world looks like today. And if nothing else, you can walk away today being thankful at the influence that Jesus has had on our world. And I hope that when you leave today, you're able to say you're thankful for the influence that he's had on your own life and your own spiritual journey. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for our time together. Um, I know for some, just getting a history lesson isn't always inspiring, but um, Jesus, we're so thankful that you um, broke the mold, that you were not willing to be controlled by culture or your times, that you understood what we have been created for, that we've all been equally created in your image, that we all have intrinsic value. And Jesus, that you didn't just come to die to save the wealthy or the talented or the respectable. You came to love and to serve those who desperately needed you. And whether we're willing to admit it, that's every single one of us. And so, Lord, I I ask that you would just continue to move. That your influence in our life and in this world wouldn't slow down, but it only pick up. And that no matter where we all come in here today, whether we are close to you or far from you, believe in you or scoff at you, celebrate you or doubt you that Jesus you would reveal yourself to us